The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, Ecclesia. It's a gift to see each and every one of you. Would you allow a moment for me to pray for you? And in fact, if you feel so led this morning, it would be helpful if you also would pray for me. And, uh, and in that reciprocation, we're gonna hope that God is up to something really beautiful for each of us this morning. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for the truth of scripture. I thank you for the ways that the Bible invites us into a new story, a redemptive story, that when we can't see past our problems or our struggles, we're invited by Christ to see what's most important. And so we ask today, God, that the the passage that we'll read and the reflection time that we'll have with one another uh, would call us to something better, something more beautiful, something more hopeful. We pray, God, that we could see ourselves as we are and that we could know that we are deeply and profoundly loved by you, by so many in this room and others. Lord, may we receive that love well and learn to give it back and to share it. We pray all of this together, and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you, Ecclesia. I'm gonna uh, invite you into one of my favorite passages today. And um, and in that passage, it's uh, it's a reminder. um, Have you guys ever thought much about the verses and the chapters in the Bible? Have you paid much attention to um, the way that we read the Bible because of those? Everybody probably is fully aware that those were not in the Bible, right? That Paul did not write letters and say, dear my friends in Corinth, right? Just, and verse one, right? Just like you wouldn't write a letter to your mom and be like, verse one, dear mom. (laughs) Verse two, out of money. Verse three, need more money. Verse four, please send immediately, right? You just wouldn't, you wouldn't write that way. You wouldn't, we don't think that way. And so what happens when you read a, re- read a letter that has become diagrammed, right? Sometimes you kind of forget that it's a letter, like a heartfelt letter. When you read a story that's kind of diagrammed, it sometimes breaks it up. Now, I'll tell you, part of what happened, and it's really good, is that these chapters and verses, literally, they, they came into existence because um, as people were studying the scriptures, which, by the way, I think is a great idea, um, it's also got its limitations, but as people were studying the scriptures, they were in classrooms and they were like, how do we literally get on the same page, right? It's not an expression. It's like they needed to figure out a way to get on the same page. And so some theologians just started having different systems and they created and one of the best ones came out and then they said, well, let's use this one and everybody's used it since. It is totally not inspired by God. In fact, sometimes it's ridiculous. Um, There are places you'll read the Old Testament and they'll be in the middle of a story or almost a phrase and they'll break up the chapter and you go, what were those guys thinking? Like, were they drinking that day that they were breaking up the chapters or what what exactly was happening? Um, And and again, if, if you study the Bible, and we ought to do some of that for sure, um, but I, I will tell you, and I'm a fan of Christian education, just so you know, if you go to a Christian school, I went to a Christian school for university, I went to public school uh, growing up, but I will tell you there are some limitations to um, studying the Bible, um, and, and I'll tell you, some of the Christian schools here in this town, I don't think get it right. 
Um, part, part of what happens is you make the Bible homework, right? And who likes homework here? Anybody here fired up for homework, right? And, and all of a sudden what happens in a Bible class is that a teacher can make the Bible like drudgery. Some people, and, and the Bible's not drudgery, it's, it's a gift, it's beautiful, it's, it's amazing, it's historical. Um, but all of a sudden, if you test people on the Bible and you kind of use the Bible in these other ways, it just becomes really like, oh, I don't like the Bible. And I think that's one of the worst things that Christian education can do if you don't do it well. What you gotta do is really invite people into what the Bible actually is. It's life-giving, it's beautiful, it's poetic, it's, can you tell I like the Bible? Um, and today, I tell you all that to say that in John, the people that broke down the chapters did a great job. They nailed it. Um, in fact, John nailed it when he wrote it because it's just so beautiful and personal. I love all the gospels, um, but I love John. You're, you're like, John gives us this perspective. You remember what he calls himself in it. He doesn't call himself John, right? I'm the beloved. I'm the beloved disciple, right? Sounds a little arrogant, right? So if you were riding and you constantly your leg, you know, I'm the favorite kid in my family, right? And some of you do this, by the way. And maybe you were the favorite kid, but you really believe, right? And, and really great parents, you know what really great parents do? Every kid thinks they're the favorite kid. If you're a really great parent, it's hard to be a really great parent, by the way. So don't put that expectation on yourself, but Jesus, the ultimate parent, right? I think all the disciples, John just reflected on it personally in a way that was really um, inviting. But I think all the disciples thought they were the favorite disciple. Because when you were with Jesus, you went, no one loves me like he loves me. And, uh, and if you're struggling, I wanna invite you to read the Bible, to pray and to connect with God in a way that will remind you like John knew. Man, a lot of things off in my life, but Jesus really loves me, and, uh, and that's a gift. So back to the chapter thing. This is why I love it in John. Um, in John, you've got this structure. You saw it in the sermon that I shared with you two weeks ago in John 6. Anybody remember the sermon from John 6? Two people, so I'm a, I'm a fabulous preacher, apparently. <laughs> Thinking about quitting, but I'm gonna keep going at least through this sermon. I'll, I'll, I'll wait to write my resignation letter until after the service is over. Um, it, the reason I love what you see in John 6, you're gonna see it in this one, Jesus does something, right? In that case, it was the multiplication of the fish and loaves, which was pretty amazing. The feeding of the maybe 25,000, right? Then, then he does something else. He engages in a smaller way with the disciples, does a miraculous thing walking out on the water. And then at the end of it, they come back to him. Remember, they come back and they're like, Jesus, do the bread thing again, right? And Jesus is like, you don't understand. I'm not what I do. This would be a good lesson for you and I too. I'm not what I do. I am who I am, right? You know you're a human being, not a human doing, right? And Jesus said, it's not about what I do. It's about who I am. Let me tell you who I am. He said, you want bread? I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread. You eat this bread, and you'll know what life is, right? They're like, wow, this is beautiful, right? We're gonna see the same thing today in John chapter eight. Jesus does something, and then um, we're gonna see Jesus. We're, then we're gonna look at, um, then Jesus says who he is, right? And then people react to it. 
That's what we're gonna see in John chapter eight. He does something, then he explains what he did by telling who he is, and then we see people's reaction to it. Um, just to keep it, sometimes, you guys ever had this experience with a movie where you just, um, and some of you, well I know my friend Faith, she watches these Hallmark movies, they're awful. Um, <laughs> you know what's happening in that movie before it starts, right? You literally, like I could tell you, like years ago, there was a really good movie, George Clooney was in a movie about like a, it was like a hurricane and the ship goes down or something, anybody remember what that one's called? Perfect Storm, exactly. Was it a hurricane? It's so not memorable, I don't remember, but what I do remember is, from the first five minutes of the movie, I knew exactly what was happening in that movie, right? I could have checked out and been done, right? You know what great filmmakers do, right? They, they switch the order of things to the point that you're not sure when something hap- is happening, right? So Hebrews were famous for this. They would tell a story in a different order. So the Song of Solomon is that way. Quentin Tarantino makes a film and what does he do? He goes middle, end, beginning, right? And then you're like, where? Wait, where did it start and where did it end? You gotta put the pieces back together. We're gonna do a little bit of that today because this chapter, if you let it be too predictable, you won't read it well. So in John chapter eight, we're gonna look at what Jesus did. Then we're gonna look at how they responded to what Jesus said about who he is. Then we're gonna, at the end, come back and actually deal with who Jesus says that he is. And hopefully, that'll help keep us all interested and, um, and not asleep. So, um, John chapter eight, let's read this passage together. First it tells us that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, this is the season that every week you're like, Pastor Chris is now gonna tell us a story from the Holy Land, because he's just back from the Holy Land. Um, Let me just show you the Mount of Olives. Let me show you one of my favorite olive trees on the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. When you go with people, some guides will tell people, just because it sounds cool, these trees are as old as Jesus. It's not true, but they'll tell people that. Um, But they're really old. They carbon dated. Um, It's not this tree, it's another one. Uh, But many of them go back 950 years, so about 1,000 years. So um, not quite as old as Jesus, but pretty awesome, right? And you can imagine when you're there what it would be like to be on the Mount of Olives with Jesus. And what the Bible tells us is that he went from the Mount of Olives and then he went to the temple. That's what we're about to read. And what we know is that he would have gone through this gate, they call it the Golden Gate, right? The Golden Gate has been sealed, um, and you'll hear a lot of stories about why it was sealed. We don't really know what's true, uh, but but part of what you'll hear often is that uh, a Muslim regime, because it was known that the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, he will enter through the Golden Gate. So when Jesus came to Jerusalem, he entered Jerusalem through the Golden Gate. There are many that believe because of that, that when he comes again, he will come again and enter through the Golden Gate. Uh, So the idea is at least that uh, Muslim regime sealed this gate so that Jesus wouldn't come back or the Messiah wouldn't come. I'm pretty sure a closed door is not gonna keep Jesus out, by the way. It was was really a bad idea overall. Um, but, But what you ought to know is that if you went through that gate, you would then be on the Temple Mount, which is where the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, currently stands. And uh, that's what Jesus would have done and where he would have gone. So in John 8, just so now you have context, he's walking down the hill, Mount of Olives, into the old city of Jerusalem, um, into the temple area. And it tells us he woke early in the morning to return to the temple. 
And when he arrived, the people surrounded him. So he sat down and he began to teach them. And while he was teaching, the scribes and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. We know this was not just, hey, a rumor got around. We know she was caught in the act of adultery. Now, it's pretty obvious as well here, right, that, um, that she wasn't caught in the act of adultery by herself. It's not possible, right? And somehow, she's dragged in, but whoever she was with was not dragged in. It's fascinating. But it tells us, right, that she was dragged in as he was teaching, And they stood her before Jesus. And the Pharisees said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Moses says in the law that we're to kill such a woman by stoning. What do you say about it, right? And it tells us right up, this was a setup as a test for Jesus, right? Are you going to contradict Moses, Jesus? His answers would give them grounds to accuse him of crimes against Moses' law. And Jesus bent over and he wrote something in the dirt with his finger. This is one of the great speculations of the Bible, right? What did Jesus write? My guess is that Jesus, whatever he wrote, we know it led to real introspection, right? Which tells you he was a gifted preacher with a few words he could, I'm going to use like thousands and thousands of words and hope to offer you a moment of introspection, right? Uh, He was really effective with a few words. I, I think whatever he wrote, because he's Jesus, it could be kind of like the matrix where everybody saw something different than the other. They saw what they needed to see. Like if I hold up weird paintings for a while and I psychologically analyze you to see what you see and you'll see something that tells you something about yourself. But we know he he wrote something. They persisted in badgering Jesus. He was still sitting down He was still trying to teach. And he stood up straight. This would be Jesus' way of saying, I'm stopping teaching and I'm going to address this. A rabbi would sit when he was teaching, which is why I have a stool. I'm the right kind of teacher. The others are off track, standing all the time. It's not, I just like it. This feels good. I broke my hip and it feels better this way. See, Jesus says to them, right? Let the first stone be thrown by the one among you who has not sinned. And once again, Jesus bent down to the ground and he resumed writing with his finger. We don't know. But whatever, whatever he wrote led to introspection for these people. It was clear to them that they were not qualified to throw the first stone. The Pharisees who heard him stood still for a few moments and then began to leave slowly, one by one. It's part of why we know they were introspective. Beginning with the older men, that's interesting as well, isn't it? Anybody remember being a younger man? Do we have a younger man here? As a younger man, I knew so much more than I currently know, right? (laughs) So much more, I was so smart back then, right? And life has a way of chipping off the edges. They'd lived long enough to have some muck on their boots, right? That's the polite way to say it. Anybody here got a little muck on your boots? Hopefully all of us, you get a lot more as you get more time to step in it. 
So we know the older men, they began to leave, and eventually only Jesus and the woman remained. And Jesus looked up. Now remember, Jesus would have had to get low, likely to look up, and then to see the woman. And he said to her, dear woman, where is everyone? Are we alone? Did no one step forward to condemn you? And the woman who had been caught in adultery, we don't know her name. I think in heaven we'll know her. She'll have a real name. She'll be a real person. She said, Lord, no one has condemned me. And Jesus responded, well, I do not condemn you either. And all I ask is that you go and from now on avoid the sins that plague you. I got a question for you. I'm gonna invite you to answer it. This is the part that I'm asking you to be introspective, but I will be less effective than Jesus. What is it about this story that gives you hope? Not like hope for the world, not like, like for you, for you. What about this story gives you hope? And then I'd love for you to share that with three or four people around you. And then I'm, you, you, like, you have to seriously do this because I'm gonna ask you to report back in the last service and people are just goofing around, um, which is why I realized how ineffective I am. So um, if, you, if you would actually think of an answer and think of, like for you, what makes this story go, I can be hopeful because of what I hear in this story because for me, this is what matters. So um, you got 45 seconds, go. All right. Okay, here we go. We're gonna start with our friends over in this corner because they were clearly doing the exercise better than the rest of you. Some of you, I could read your lips. You were talking about what you're going to eat for lunch. I saw you, I know who you are. This group seemed to really engage. So this group could start us off. A couple of you, what about this gives you hope? To, to be forgiven by Jesus, right? It's, it's what we all long for, absolutely. Somebody else? Yeah. No matter how great sin, Literally, it, it could have been small, it could have been large. We tend to rank them, right? But Jesus didn't, he didn't. Somebody over here. Yeah, such a gift. Yet yeah, Jesus' real response. And it's so different that if you, if you have a program religious thing to what you think Jesus is gonna respond and what they thought Jesus would do, nobody predicted that's what Jesus would do in that circle. They were all caught off guard. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, we get a new slate, right? That's good news. A couple over here. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of it destroys that cliche idea, right? I meet people all the time that when I tell them I'm a pastor, they go, oh, you know. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want me to come to your church. Like those people, and you go like, dude, you hadn't been to Ecclesia. Like you have no idea. Like you're not even close to the bad sinners around here. Like you don't, you're not even gonna make it in the top 200, right? So, so get over it. Somebody else over here? 
Yeah, we're not, we're not to be judged, right? Or to judge, right? This is really, really good news. So let me pause on this one for a minute, right? This, this reality that for all of us, right? We, I, anybody else grow up in a church where you did sword drills, right? And we'd like, so you gotta, if, if you didn't grow up with this, so you, you gotta get really good at flipping the Bible open fast to the right page, right? Because this is gonna come in handy when, I'm not sure it ever will, but. <laughs> and now that we have iPhones, it kind of destroys the whole thing, right? It's just really, but, but the idea, part of what I, I did carry from it, right, was, and you heard it often, right? The Bible's a sword. Are you ready to go to battle? And I misunderstood like a lot of people misunderstand, right? That, that the Bible was the sword and you're gonna cut people with it. You did the wrong thing. I don't agree with this. Like you're condemned, right? And the reality is like when the Bible talks about being this two-edged sword, right? It, it's not talking about using a sword that we would hurt other people with. It's not what it is. If you're using it that way, we're using it the wrong way. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not a sword really, it's a scalpel meant to do self-surgery. Anybody here think they know what's in anybody else's heart? Well, the answer is yes, you often do think that. Right. We always are projecting what we think other people's motivations are. We don't know. God knows. Who's the one person that you can determine motivations? Only you, only you, right? So when, when you use that scalpel and you start to peel back the onions of your motivation, anybody else have that? Where you're like, I don't know why I got defensive about that. Anybody else get defensive this week? And you're like, why was, like, what we're supposed to do, what the scriptures help us do, what we're doing now in a Lenten journey, we're denying ourselves a few things, we're fasting, we're, we're focusing on our own sin. We're asking ourselves, like, what's that about in me? Why, why am I doing that? Now, if you're a person who's trying to do that for other people, not only are you wasting your time, you're being a jerk. You get it, right? And we're all gonna be jerks from time to time. But the reality is like those, and, and I remember growing up, I've even been that person at times where the Bible was um, the thing that you read so you could prove you were right. And it's, you know what's fun about being a Christian? It's being right. It's just good to be right. I like being right. We carry this over into all kinds of things, right? And so we're actually reading the Bible to confirm what we think we already know so we can tell everybody else they're wrong, right? And it's easy to do this. You're like, well, I'm gonna, man, the Calvinists are so stupid there. I'm gonna get them so bad with this, right? And you're just, you're reading the Bible so you can use it to fight with other people. Anybody think that's a good idea? Right? It's a bad idea. And when you become that person, just to let the secret out, like nobody likes you. Like, if you're using the Bible to fight with people, like, nobody wants to be around you. They pray you won't come to parties. Like, your mom doesn't like you when you're that person. <laughs> She's hoping you won't come home this Christmas, right? Because you're gonna fight about the Bible, and there's nothing more useless than fighting about the Bible, right? God didn't give us the Bible to fight or to judge. Other than to judge our own motivation. Say, God, how can you help me know you more fully? Okay, this group can't get off uh, entirely. A couple of, yes. She didn't ask for it. That's a great observation, right? She didn't even say she was wrong. She might have thought she was right. 
Anybody else think they're right about something they're doing that's wrong? Absolutely. She didn't ask for it. She didn't claim to deserve it, but she got it. Beautiful insight. One more, something that's hopeful about this story for you. We're all sinners, sinners, right? So every one of us can realize like, that woman's me. I'm that woman. And, And many of us, just so you, like, let's get over the idea that one day you're gonna get caught. Like, that's part of what sin does. You're gonna hear more about it in just a minute. It's exactly why Jesus is about to explain what he's gonna explain. Is that sin and our our failures and mistakes, we all have some idea. I'm convinced even the most capable, strongest, healthiest among us have some sense, like if people really knew this, right? Man, everybody'd walk away from me, right? One day, I'm gonna get found out, right? You know what, you're not. And then when she was finally caught, right? The thing she thought would happen, it was the opposite. She was loved, not condemned, not punished, right? That's a gift. So let's move towards the section of people's response about what Jesus uh, has to say about who he is, and then we'll land on what Jesus actually says about who he is. In John eight thirteen, Jesus has said and explained a little bit of this first story Uh, about who he is, and the Pharisees heard it. Let's see if they like it or not. Hint, they're not gonna like it. The Pharisees say, Jesus, what are you claiming, what you're claiming about yourself cannot possibly be true. The only person bearing witness is you. Now, I don't know which Pharisee said this, right? And I don't know, like, ultimately, if they're in heaven or where they are. But wouldn't you hate to be known as the guy in the Bible who told Jesus he didn't know what he was talking about? Like whoever that guy is, that's a loser position in life, right? That's a bad day when you're like, hey Jesus, you don't know, and yet, right? How many of us, of us here, in some way internally, we wouldn't be as bold, but we go like, well, I mean that just, it's not practical, it doesn't work. And Jesus is saying, no, actually the grace I offer, it doesn't make sense to you. Who I am doesn't make sense to you, but it's true. Jesus says, even if I'm making bold claims about myself, who I am and what I've come to do, I'm speaking the truth. You see, I know where I come from and I know where I'll go when I'm done here. You know neither where I come from or where I will go. He says, you spend your time judging by the wrong criteria, by human standards, but I'm not here to judge anyone. Isn't it amazing to hear Jesus say, I'm the one who could judge and I'm not here to judge. If I were to judge, then my judgment would be based on truth, right? Because Jesus is saying, I actually do know what's in people's hearts. You don't, but I would not judge anyone alone. I act in harmony with the one who sent me. Your law states that if the testimonies of two witnesses agree, their testimony is true. Well, I testify about myself and so does the Father who sent me here. He said, if you'd really listen, you'd hear me and you'd hear the Father. The Pharisee says, where is this Father who testifies on your behalf? Jesus said, you don't know the Father or me. If you knew me, and you would also know the Father. Jesus said all of these things in the treasury, the area they collected money in the temple, while he was teaching in the temple, and followers and opponents alike gathered to hear him, but none of his enemies tried to seize him because his time had not yet come. 
And Jesus began to speak then to the crowds and he says, I'm leaving this place and you will look for me and die in your sin for where I'm going you were unable to come. And the Jews were questioning, right? Is Jesus suicidal? He keeps saying, where I'm going, you're unable to come. You originate, Jesus says, from the earth below, and I've come from the heavens above. You are from this world, and I'm not. Right? He's starting to really lean in on, hey, the, you need to know who I really am. He says, that's why I told you that you will die here as a result of your sins unless you believe I am who I have said I am. Your sins will lead to your death. And the Jews said, say, who exactly are you? It's a good question, right? They didn't always get it, but this is a good question. And Jesus said, from the beginning of my mission, I've been telling you who I am. I have so much to say about you, so many judgments to render, but if you hear one thing, hear that the one who sent me is true and all the things I have heard from him, I speak into the world. They, they didn't fully get it, but you can hear, you know when you're having a conversation, I do this when I'm preaching, by the way, and you can tell if people are listening, right? You can tell if they're processing, right? You can read this passage, you can almost see the Pharisees and the Jews, right? They're kind of going, huh, so wait, what about this? What about, they're actually hearing Jesus, right? They're, they're, they're making some progress in the journey. So now let's backtrack to the middle section. Who did Jesus tell them that he is? in these, this beautiful I am statement. In John 8, 12, this is what he told them. He said, it tells us on another occasion, Jesus spoke to the crowds again, and this is what he said. I am the light. You just sang it, by the way. Christ is the light of the world. He's the light of the world. He says, I'm the light that shines through the, say it with me, the cosmos. Why do, you think he, why do you think he said he's a light that shines through the cosmos? Any ideas? The whole universe, right? And he sang to them, right? This, earlier in John, it makes clear, right, in this poetic rendering of the creation that Jesus is the one that spoke all things into existence. And he's also making clear, right, all these other gods were gods for their people. You had an Egyptian God. You had Jews had their, everybody had their God, right? And he's saying, I'm everyone's God. Everyone's included. No one's left out. I'm the God of all people, of the whole cosmos, of the whole world, right? And we can become, uh, you know, ethnocentric or, or cent centered in our own identity. God cares about us. And he's saying, oh, I care about everyone, right? I'm the light that shines through the cosmos. And if you... Say it with me, walk with me. I love, he says, I'm, I'm the light, right? And the light penetrates through the darkness. We all know, right? Uh, we all know the benefits of being in the light. Anybody yesterday, walk outside and just go, naturally you had a reflex and just went, ah, right? Anybody else? <laughs> just, right? It, it, doesn't it make you just so grateful that you don't live in like Minnesota or something? Where you're like, what, what are those people Right? How many of you have lived in one of those places? I, I learned, right? This is, it's just, uh, in the early years of Ecclesia, I used to pay the bills by speaking. And so I'd realize, like, I'd get tons of invitations in January to Minnesota because those people have nothing to do. They need somebody to come speak to them, right? And I'd show up, right, with my jacket in 25 below. And one, just realized, like, I'm a Houstonian. Like, I'm made to live here. This is where I'm made to live, right? 
But what happens when you live there for a full winter, right? What? You get depressed. It starts to get dark. You don't get enough light, right? And everybody knows, like, when you don't get enough light, right? People, and people lose it, right? There are places where you get out and people just, they start beating each other up in the middle of winter because they're just like, they're not quite right, right? Every, in the last service, two people said at the time, same time, you get fat, right? <laughs> you got nothing to do. You're like, I'll, I guess I'll make more chili. I, any, and chili leads to beer, which leads to more chili, which leads to more beer. And then you got to put Fritos and cheese and everything else on it, right? And by the end of the winter, you're like, man, how did this happen? Right? What happened? You didn't have anything to do, right? right? Jesus says, I'm the light. And if we get to get out, we get out and then we go, oh, I'm going to be okay. I don't, I don't have anything to hide. Things grow in the darkness that aren't good. And then Jesus says, right, all you got to do, just walk with me. What was Jesus' first invitation to the disciples? You remember? Follow me. It's pretty simple. And yet, right, that, that's our faith with Jesus, follow me. And how many of us realize like, oh, I'm actually leading and asking Jesus to follow me. Like, I'm doing my thing, and like, you there, Jesus? Make sure you come along, right? Because I'm gonna need you soon, right? Because I'm gonna get into trouble again, right? <laughs> Jesus is like, well, you keep getting into trouble because you're not, you're supposed to let me take the lead, right? I'm gonna walk with you, but it just helps if you let me lead because I got a few more things figured out that you don't have. He says, so I'm the light. This is what you ought to do. Walk with me. And if you do, I love this part. That's where we're gonna land so we go to communion. Listen, he says, if you do, you'll thrive. I'm not the kind of person that has a word for every year, but I think 2020, like the word I'd like to have is thrive, right? Anybody else want to thrive in 2020? Like, I'd like to thrive. I'd like, he's, all your gifts, all the best of you would just begin to grow and flourish, right? And you say, I'm gonna th- you're going to thrive in the nourishing light that gives life, and you won't know darkness. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't have moments of doubt and pain and darkness and difficulty but as we walk with him, we get to continually step back into the light, right? Say, all right, God, walk with me. I want to thrive in that nourishing light. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible describes Jesus as the light. I want to read it to you, and then we're going to take communion. In Revelation 21, John has a vision. This is a beautiful passage, by the way. It's one of my favorite If I ever visit you in the hospital though and I read Revelation 21, it means you're about to die, just so you know. (laughs) So, just be ready. It could be a little awkward because it's it's about heaven, right? And you get there and and, uh, and it's beautiful because it's hopeful. So as you read it, I tell you that to say, as you think of people that you know that are in this place that John's seen, right? This is, this is the place you want to be. John gets a vision, and part of what happens as you prepare to die, right, if that's how you die, is that you begin to realize, like, I'm not afraid of death because where I'm going, it's better than here. And one of the reasons I know and can believe that is because of what John says in Revelation 21. And, and he just says this. He says, I, I looked again. He's having a vision. He's seeing heaven itself. 
I looked again and I could hardly believe my eyes. Everything above me was new. Everything below me was new. Everything around me was new because the heaven and earth that had been passed away and the sea was gone completely and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride on her wedding day, right? One of the best metaphors you can imagine, right? My favorite thing to do, I love to do weddings because they usually have good food and an open bar and because I get the best seat in the house when I get to do it. And that moment, right, we've done them in this room, those doors open and the bride steps in, right? And I usually give the groom a little pat just to keep him on edge, right? And you look at that guy as he sees her step down the aisle, it's the most beautiful sight, right? John says, that's what heaven looked like. Prepared for her, a bride prepared for her wedding day, adorned for her husband and for his eyes only. And I heard a great voice coming from the throne. And the voice said this, see the home of God is with his people and he will live among them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and the prophecies are fulfilled. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, mourning no more, crying no more, pain no more for the first things have gone away. And the one who sat on the throne announced to his creation, see, I am making all things new. Then it says he turned to John and said, hey, would you write this down? And it nice that John just included, like I was having this vision and then he was like, you get lost in heaven. He was like, you're supposed to write this stuff down so other people can remember it, right? And he goes on and he explains more about the city, what the walls look like and where it was and it reflected Jerusalem itself. And then he says this about the city. He says, and in that city, I found no temple because the Lord God, the all-powerful and the lamb are the temple. He said, you didn't have to go into the Holy of Holies to meet God. God was present everywhere. You could feel God's presence everywhere. And he says, And in the city, there is no need for the sun. Can you imagine? There's this place and there's no sun. There's no need for the sun to light the day or the moon, the night, because the resplendent glory of the Lord provides the city with warm, beautiful light. And the lamb illumines every corner of the new Jerusalem. That's what heaven is gonna ultimately be about, is that the light of Jesus will be so crystal clear It will warm us, it will draw us near. Um, It's gonna be better than ultraviolet rays and what they do for us. It's it's gonna have uh, this ability to lift us up and we'll feel the love of Jesus in every corner of heaven. Now, I think that's good news. And until then, right, what we wanna do is be a people that we do still get to seek Jesus' light. We do it through prayer. We do it through spiritual practice. We do it through worship but it's easy to let ourselves drift into the darkness. And today, Ecclesia, as we come to communion, I wanna invite you to live in the light of his love. Not to let the darkness creep into your heart, but to say, God, I wanna walk with you. I wanna know you. I trust you. I don't have to hide from you. Like this beautiful, wonderful woman, I can fail and I can know your fullness and your grace and your glory and your forgiveness. Would you pray with me and then we're gonna come to the table together. Lord God, we thank you for this bread. We believe you're the bread of life. We believe you're our provision. We believe that you're the light of the world that you illumine all things, that things that didn't make sense to us, when they're brought into your light, they make sense. Things that are, are holding us back 
that we're struggling with, and when we bring them into your light, we find peace and hope. Lord, may we live in, in that light. May we invite others into it. May we be reminded that we're not here to judge anyone. The only heart we can judge is our own and help us have insight so that we can deal with the places that we made mistakes. Lord, we know we make mistakes. We just prefer not to make the same ones over and over and over again. We wanna learn from them. We wanna grow. We wanna experience forgiveness. Lord God, we thank you for this cup, for this wine and juice that tells us that we're a people who are loved. We're a people who are forgiven. We're a people who like this beautiful woman. We're not defined by our failure. We know that ultimately the Bible, in the Bible we didn't know her name, so we call her the woman caught in adultery, but we knew that Jesus knew her name. She was a woman, she was a person. She was created in the image of God and she was treated as such. Lord, may we receive your love in the same way and may we offer it back to others. We thank you, God, for your abundant blessings. We pray this together and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.